Uh, we have to figure out whether this kind of um, access is one that's going to cause harm, um, like the problem of fair trial, uh, because that really is supposed to be the priority of court. Uh, of course, having access, First Amendment uh, access is part of it also, but the two have to, both, both are uh, central concerns. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening today. I'm Craig Williams from a partly cloudy, partly sunny Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where I practice law and write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. I write a blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out, which would make a great Christmas gift, um, How to Get Sued. <laughs> and uh, as long as we're being uh, like that, we're going to take time to thank our sponsors, Clio, which is a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. And Above All Legal, a new online job board for the legal community. You can find out more about Above All Legal at abovealllegal.com. And finally, Firm Manager from LexisNexis at myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Craig, Craig, I got to ask, is, is there a Kindle version for your book? There is a Kindle version for the book. Excellent. Good. You bet. Okay. And, and it's inexpensive. Um, I think the, the book is in runoff right now, so uh, <laughs> buy them up while you can get them. <laughs> okay. And now that we've done that shameless promotion, thank you very much, Bob. Good. And you have a book. Uh, you had a book that you wrote. I a did long have time a, ago. Yes, I did have a book. It. It's still out. It's still out there. I wouldn't buy it, but it's kind of out of date. What's it called? It's the, the, the Essential Guide to the Best and Worst Legal Sites on the Web. Which was out of date the moment it got published. Exactly. Right? That's the problem with it. Yeah. There's, it's, st- it's still for sale. You can still get it through uh, ALM, uh, law.com bookstore. Yeah. A bit of internet history. Well, yes. it's a, is it a benefit to the public or a potentially harmful influence in the Supreme Court? If passed, the Cameras in the Courtroom Act of 2011 would require television coverage of all open sessions at the Supreme Court of the United States, which so far has been very reluctant to put cameras in their courtroom. Uh, This latest measure to bring cameras into the Supreme Court was introduced by Democratic Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois and Republican Senator Charles Grassley of Iowa. Cameras are common in a lot of state courts. Uh, Why is there so much controversy surrounding cameras in the Supreme Court? We're going to talk about that today uh, with two uh, guests who are rather knowledgeable on the topic. Uh, First of all, let me introduce uh, our our first guest, uh, Nancy Martyr. Nancy Martyr is professor of law at Chicago Kent College of Law. She is also the director of the Jury Center and co-director of the Institute for Law and the Humanities there. Uh, Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Nancy Martyr. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And Bob, our second guest this morning is Eric P. Robinson. Eric is the deputy director of the Donald W. Reynolds Center for Courts and Media at the University of Nevada, Reno. And he's spent 10 years with the Media Law Resources Group, and we're happy to welcome him to the show. It's nice to be here again. So, Nancy, uh, we may have alluded to it in the introduction, but what's the Supreme Court's current policy on television in the courtroom? Uh, The Supreme Court does not allow cameras in the courtroom. 
and it never has. Um, I, there is a project going on, a federal pilot project, allowing uh, cameras in 14 federal district courts, and that's a three-year project, and they'll study it and see what effects it has, at least in the lower courts. As a matter of fact, we here in Massachusetts are, are one of those pilot districts, uh, and I know that the uh, district court has put out some some local rules on that. Uh, I'm not sure whether anybody's taken advantage of it yet, but uh, uh, Eric, uh, why uh, you're you're at the uh, the rental center, and you've you've been at the Media Law Resource Center in the past? What why does the Supreme Court uh, continue to be uh, such a source of uh, debate over this question of cameras when it seems to be gaining wider acceptance uh, in other venues? Well, the Supreme Court sets its own rules and sets its own standards, and basically those nine justices decide whether cameras are allowed or not. And to you know, until you know, so far they just haven't. Uh, decided to allow the allow cameras in and you know i, I mean what's I, i'm assuming that since you're at the reynolds center uh, maybe i'm assuming wrong erroneously but I, I would assume that you're in favor of cameras in the supreme court uh, what is your position and and uh, what would you like to see happen there well, well the center's position is uh the center doesn't have an official position um uh, personally, I think cameras should be in the Supreme Court, as they are in most other state Supreme Courts and state and uh, many uh, state trial courts. Um, we work with judges at all levels, and while we acknowledge, you know, I acknowledge that having a camera and dealing with the media is uh, something that the the judge and the court has to deal with. Uh, and it might be a court management issue in some cases. Um, it's incumbent upon the courts to be open and accessible to the public. And the, in the modern era, that you know, that means uh, TV cameras or video, or video cameras of some sort. Nancy, how, what's your perspective on that issue? Uh, well, I agree with the part that access is good. And I think the Supreme Court and all of the federal courts, but the Supreme Court in particular, provides access in that uh, members of the public can attend oral argument so they can be there physically and present. Uh, the Supreme Court provides a transcript of the oral argument and an audio recording of the oral argument, and most importantly, extensive written opinions explaining the reasoning of the court. So I think access is good, and to the extent we can improve it, we should. Uh, but I think that adding cameras is not a costless decision, uh, that we have to think about the effects on the participants, on the lawyers, the justices, and the potential to distract them and to do harm to the institution of the Supreme Court. Well, elaborate a little bit on that, Nancy, because what what is the potential harm? And and if you, if I can jump in for just a second, I'd also really like you to address that issue with respect to the cameras that are already extant in the courtrooms around the country. Um, okay. Uh, so the kind of harm that I worry about is that justices and lawyers will become more self-conscious during oral argument. 
They won't push the extreme hypothetical. They won't make uh, the extreme argument. And that's really part of the thinking process, the working out of their views. Uh, lawyers could aim for the soundbite. Uh, they could think more about how they're playing to the broader audience. And I think it's just human behavior uh, that you're influenced when you know that your conversation is going to millions of people. And I worry about the unintended consequences, how snippets of the video of the images will end up on YouTube, will end up on cable network, will end up on political ads and in social media. And so they get used in unintended ways. And once they're online, they're online forever. Uh, so I feel that we should go, we should think about this, not assuming that everything will work exactly as it does now. I don't think it will. And in terms of the federal system versus, I mean, the Supreme Court versus the state system, uh, states have many restrictions, first of all. Um, many states are elected judges, so they think differently about getting their image out there and their work known. Uh, they have different concerns. And I think that the Supreme Court deals with such hot-button political issues that uh, it's useful for them to be out of the public eye. And I think the issues will become more politicized, and that won't be helpful uh, to the distanced uh, legal discourse that we need at the Supreme Court. And and the people that are after uh, cameras in the courtroom would counter every argument that you just made with the exact opposite argument. I mean, they would provide and ask for... <laughs> Go ahead, Eric, knock yourself out. Um, well, I mean, I mean there, I'm not dismissing that there might be some concerns and some issues that arise if cameras were allowed in the Supreme Court. But the, I, the bottom line, I think, is that they're, they're a public institution. They're doing the public's work, so to speak. Um, and the public should have access to that. In, a, in an era when that is possible and every other process of government is, you know, is open and available, um, they are, whether they like it or not, they are public officials and public figures, to use, you know, the legal jargon, um, and their activities should be subject to some level of uh, public scrutiny um, beyond their uh, controlled releases of information and opinions and, and, the, and the like. I guess I would wonder, what does it add, since you can listen to the oral argument, how does seeing the justice add to your knowledge about what's going on? I guess, Nancy, Nancy, in response to that question, I would ask you then, why would why do people pick up the phone and call, or why would people prefer to meet in person as opposed to simply sending an email or listening to a voicemail message? I mean, obviously, the thing that you get when you see people and see their reactions, you get the facial expressions along with the uh, the words, uh, which add a lot. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I'm starting to get the feeling Nancy might be gang feel ganged up on. Me. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry about that. No, and and that's not our that's not our job. Um, that's but, not what we're uh, here to do. One, I mean, I would have. I mean, one problem with the audio that the Supreme Court releases is that they only do it at the end of the week, 
um, you know, on a Friday when their oral arguments are earlier in the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, so they've that audio is not. I mean, in TV terms, it's not fresh, and it's not going to be part of the store the those that evening news story about the oral argument. So that can be easily resolved. You can simply move it to the day of argument, and I, I'm fine with that as long as it's an audio, and that would solve that problem. I guess I just wondered, though, Nancy, I mean, I've seen, I know here in Massachusetts where I am, the Supreme Judicial Court uh, televises all of its oral arguments. They do so quite discreetly. I mean, there's a, a there are a couple of, of cameras installed, you know, in a, in a permanent installation in the courtroom uh, out of out of sight, really, of, of the, the lawyers uh, in the room. Uh, and while they certainly know they're being broadcast, uh, they, they don't seem to be uh, thinking about it uh, or, or concerned about it. it and uh, while I can understand that cameras might provoke some grandstanding in a, in a trial court, perhaps, or, or in front of a jury, uh, the, the, the Supreme Court seems... Uh, just by the nature of the institution, that it would be immune from uh, you know any kind of a sort of a grandstanding or or uh, exaggerated rhetoric uh, provoked by the camera. I mean, where, where's the evidence that 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 might happen? Well, it, it I agree that uh, cameras are discreet in the courtroom, and they weren't when they were first introduced, and they are today, and that's not the problem. But I think what happens is the images. Uh, when they start running elsewhere, uh, that's when it becomes influential and I would argue detrimental. And it's not that what's going on in the Massachusetts Supreme Court isn't uh, sort of important, but it, it's not on the same level, I think, as what's going on, on at the Supreme Court level. And so you're not going to get it appearing on YouTube and uh, cable, a uh, Fox News or WNSNBC. Uh, so it, it, you, you don't have the same level of attention focused on it. And I just, I see harm in creating celebrity justices. I don't think that's helpful to their job. And so I would switch the burden and I would ask uh, those who want to change the procedure, what evidence do you have for suggesting that this will help the Supreme Court to do its work. Because if it won't, and it carries all these risks, then then I think it shouldn't be done. Well, well don't we have the Supreme Court's own precedent there, uh, suggesting that the, 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 the public right of access to the courts uh, is, a, is a fundamental underpinning of, of the right to a, you know, a fair trial and, and the right to keep our judicial proceedings running in a, in a fair way? And, and can you really have access these days uh, just by letting a, a trickle of, of people physically attend a proceeding. It, it just doesn't work. Well, I think there, there's a whole way in which we have access uh, from not, as I mentioned in the beginning, not just the oral argument, uh, but the written opinions as well as the transcript and the audio. I think we have more access than we've ever had at any other point in time. So I don't think we're falling short on the access. And I, I agree with you that that is a public-centered position. And my position is much more a participant-centered position. I'm looking at it from the perspective of the lawyers and the justices and saying what will enhance their work. Um, they report to us in other ways. And I'm not sure that television adds 
significantly to their work and help them to do their job. Can I jump in on this? Um, much of the court's work happens behind in non-public sessions. I mean, it happens in the conferences. It happens in the chambers where ju- justices, you know, draft and edit opinions, send you know, send them around. All that activity that happens, you know, in the courthouse, but not in public view. And I would make the argument that that is primarily the work of the court. Um, in crafting legal arguments, crafting legal opinions, and discussing them and voting and all that. Uh, so I would, I, as somebody who was a law clerk there, I would say that oral argument does play a role in the justices working out their views. Right. No. I, so well, I think that in, insofar as it is part of their work, uh we have to think about it from that perspective. Of course, it is open to the public, and it's public in many different ways. Uh, and I don't want to change that. In fact, I want to enhance that. Um, and I would get, just go to the larger point, too, that uh, other branches of government, uh, you know, C-SPAN now covers uh, congressional hearings. The president appears and gives a State of the Union address. But that's about as open as it gets. We we don't get to see how decisions are made. We don't get to see them working out their positions. So I think that we don't demand it of the other branches. I want to jump in here with a question that kind of really reframes the question that Nancy asked. She said, you know, is this, are the cameras in the courtroom really designed to help the Supreme Court do its job? And I think that misses the point. The point here is... Do cameras in the courtroom enhance the public's ability to be able to understand what the Supreme Court's doing, much in the same way that if you really wanted to sit and watch C-SPAN and watch the legislative debates, you could do that? I mean, I don't think that the, the Cameras in the Courtroom Act was designed to help the Supreme Court. I think it's really designed to provide a benefit to the public. Well, I think that— am, am I wrong on that? I, no, you're, you're right on that. But I, I think that I would like to try and shift <laughs> the emphasis. I think that a lot of the public debate— has been on the role of the Supreme Court in terms of educating the public. And I'd like to add to that, fill out that picture, that that's not the only goal here. I just wanted to uh, push back on on one uh, one thing uh, you said, Nancy, which is that uh, congressional hearings, um, whatever you may think of them, you know, uh, committee hearings, subcommittee hearings, I think are in some okay, – you can make an – an analogy to oral argument. I mean, you have witnesses and you have the Congress, members of Congress, asking them questions or making statements to try to convince other members of Congress to vote one way or another on legislation or on an issue or something like that. So I think there's more of an analogy there than you might might, uh, have acknowledged. I think the analogy might be to when the justices announce the opinions from the bench, uh, that there you have a, a script or a work product and you're delivering it. I think give and take, um, where you don't know where the questions are going to go, it's really just all about the exchange. Uh, that's, that's a rarity. Uh, maybe it does happen occasionally for the congressional committees, but most of the time it seems very scripted. 
Well, this is a great discussion. We need to take a short break. Uh, so please hold your thoughts. Much more on this uh, controversy over cameras in the U.S. Supreme Court when Lawyer to Lawyer returns right after this. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. You've heard of Firm Manager. You've seen ads for Firm Manager. Now you can try Firm Manager free for 30 days at www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Firm Manager is the web-based matter management application from LexisNexis that lets you run your practice anywhere, anytime, including your desktop, laptop, mobile phone, or iPad. Take the free 30-day trial today at www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN and spend less time focusing on clerical work and more time on practicing law. This is Kay Kenny at Legal Talk Network, and I'm talking with attorney Mimi Manginis, co-founder of Above All Legal, a new online job board for the legal community. Mimi, tell us about Above All Legal and how it works. Sure. Above All Legal is an online job board that connects legal professionals uh, with top-notch law firms of all sizes, as well as corporate legal departments. The AAL process is fast and it's simple. Candidates can place their profile and resumes for free, and then they can search and apply for jobs that are specific to their geographic preferences and job category. Also, for a fraction of the price of other job boards, employers can post jobs and can search our extensive resume database according to their selective criteria. We've been talking to attorney Mimi Manginis, co-founder of Above All Legal. Check it out at AboveAllLegal.com. That's AboveAllLegal.com. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. 
And this is Bobby Ambrogi, and we're joined by Nancy Martyr from Chicago Kent College of Law and Eric Robinson from the uh, University of Nevada, Reno. And uh, uh, we're talking in from the Donald W. Reynolds Center for Courts and the Media at the University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, and we're talking about cameras in the Supreme Court. Uh, Eric, uh, C-SPAN, other media outlets have asked uh, Chief Justice Roberts to permit television coverage of the uh, arguments uh, over the health care reform law when they come up. I think it's in March. Uh, no decision has been announced on that, but could that be a foot in the door here? What do you think is likely to happen with that? Um, well, I would like to think the court would uh, be amenable to that, although given the history of this, I tend to doubt that they will agree to it. Uh, I mean, this, this, you know, this decision uh, or this argument is clearly going to be a uh, a major event in you know in our current political landscape. And it, I mean, it, it's an unprecedented argument. Five and a half hours, I think they've scheduled for oral argument. I mean, that alone. Uh, gives some import of uh, some uh, indicator of the magnitude of this case, and you know this is obviously one of the hot political issues of our day. And it seems to me that the the public should be part of that uh, debate and discussion, and should be able to see uh, how it's argued to the Supreme Court, so that when that decision comes down, it makes some sense to. Uh, this is what was argued, and this is how the case was decided. Nancy, do you have thoughts on that? Is that a, is that a slippery slope to you? Uh, if cameras uh, could, could, would it be conceivable to allow cameras for specific cases, but not uh, as a rule of thumb? Uh, I think it would be a slippery slope. I think once cameras enter, uh, it's hard to remove them. I'm not sure that that would be the case. I would experiment with. I think uh, the court were so inclined should pick, you know, uh, an admiralty case or a RISA case. Um, but I, I think... <laughs> something picking, that will really bore the viewers, is that right? Yeah, something <laughs> that's not going to uh, end up on the front pages. I think the problem with this kind of case is that it is so much part of our uh, political landscape, and it's so important for the court to approach it uh, from a legal perspective, looking at uh, precedent and argument and uh, all the things that it should do and not to uh, be distracted with how it will uh, be perceived, how it will be seen. Uh, the court has to reach its results and just and let its opinion explain itself. Nancy, how do you see the difference between microphones in the courtroom and producing audio recordings and video recordings? I mean, obviously the difference is video versus audio, but how do you distinguish between the two with saying that you can, yes, it's okay to have microphones, but it's not okay to have cameras? I think there's a huge difference, and I think it just has to go to the power of the image and how uh, when you see it, you think that you're you feel like you're there. And I guess I would explain it by just talking about some of the outlier cases like O.J. Simpson or the Anna Nicole Smith case in Florida uh, or um, uh, just any of the Menendez brothers. Once you start having coverage, uh, 
you get a lot more round-the-clock focus and uh, distortion and obsession. And I think it, it works. There's a huge difference in the way uh, people follow the case um, in our culture and the way it gets reduced to personality and celebrity and extreme statements. And so I don't see it helping the discourse. I think there's a difference between tri- trials, um, like like those cases, and appellate arguments. Um, when you have a trial, I mean that's, I mean there's, there's, it's not a coincidence that there are, there are a lot of television, fictional television shows that focus on trials and courts and judges and lawyers, uh, because there's inherent drama there, guilty, not guilty, in, you know, that sort of thing. Um, whereas an oral argument, I mean it's it's by its nature, it's almost always on a higher level and making uh, intellectual and legal arguments. Um, and obviously, under the underlying cases may involve a lot of emotion, a lot of drama. But um, I think when you have a trial, that's a different sort of animal than an appellate decision. And I- I agree with you. I think that uh, I have more trouble with cameras at trials than I do appellate argument. But you could just see that if cameras are permitted at the Supreme Court, then the argument will be, well, if the Supreme Court will allow them, certainly the lower courts should. But most lower, many lower courts do. No, federal courts. And, And the argument works in reverse, that if they're allowed in some courts, why aren't they allowed in all? Right, and and they have not been allowed in any federal district court until this pilot program, and only the Second and Ninth Circuits uh, permitted it because it was left to circuit discretion, Right, and it has not been at the Supreme Court ever. Right, but they have been. They're in plenty of state courts all yes. across the country. Yes, that's and, true. And um, the, with the regular public doesn't distinguish between federal courts and state courts like we do. They just look at it as just one big you know, court system. That's right. One, um, yeah. And so it, 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 I think the, the question is, you know, do you think that the justices will be doing some of the grandstanding and, and will be their oral argument questions will be affected by cameras in the courtroom? Well, I think you have the combination. You could have grandstanding or you could have uh, what Justice Souter said when he testified when he was in the New, Jer- uh, New Jersey, New Hampshire Supreme Court. He said he felt a lot more self-conscious. There were cameras there. And he felt that he did not push with his hypotheticals and his arguments. So he felt it did affect his behavior. Uh, so for every state example that you can point to and say, well, it's gone really well, there are counterexamples. Uh, judges have come up to me after presentations agreeing that they feel that it has changed their behavior, made it more difficult. Um, so we're not always hearing that. That doesn't. The fact that states have it and it's in place now uh, doesn't always mean that it's working or that it's not affecting behavior. And of course, there are different versions of how the states have it. I mean, we have an experiment going on in Massachusetts right now in which they're trying to keep a camera in a courtroom essentially 24-7 uh, while the court's in session. Uh, and uh, it's it's led to uh, a case that's now pending before our state Supreme Judicial Court because uh, prosecutors and defense counsel don't want uh, this live streaming video out there all the time. And they particularly don't want it archived for uh, people to go back and look at, perhaps to go back and look at who might have been a witness in a case or who might have testified uh, about something in particular. 
Uh, so uh, that's actually pending at our at our Supreme Court right now. But but that raises to me another question of, of kind of new media uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, if if we're not going to allow cameras and and we are going to allow audio at some time, what about uh, making it? You know, should should the court be doing more to facilitate? People tweeting from the courtroom and blogging from the courtroom, or, or you know, using other forms of technology from the courtroom besides video. Well, I, as far as I know, they, I mean, they they allow the reporters to have um, notepads and pens or pencils, but they don't they don't allow the general public in the you know the public areas to do that. Um, I think that that would be a, again another shift in uh, the courts thinking about these things. I mean, tweet, you know, tweeting and sending text messages from courtrooms um, is happening at, at trial courts as well. Um, the, and uh, just with the um, Sandusky uh, preliminary hearing, uh, the judge at the last minute decided to allow the media to tweet um, after not, after deciding not to allow cameras. Um uh, but you know, then you get into. Uh, I would ar- would argue that the media tweeting is one thing, um, and in fact, on the last time I was on the show, uh, it was with a reporter from uh, Kansas who's doing a lot of that. Uh, you know, then you get into problems with jurors tweeting, and that that's a whole separate issue. Yeah, that was the problem that I was going to raise, uh, since my area is the jury, and this is now a greater concern to judges and courts figuring out how to get jurors uh, to limit themselves to uh, keeping their thoughts and exchanging them just with their fellow jurors, since that's so important to a fair trial. Um, So again, I think that uh, we have to figure out whether this kind of um, access is one that's going to cause harm, um, like the problem of fair trial. Uh, because that really is supposed to be the priority of courts. Uh, of course, having access, First Amendment uh, access is part of it also, but the two have to, both both are uh, central concerns. We are uh, getting near the end of the time for this show, and before we break, we did want to make sure we give each of you an opportunity to uh, kind of give us your closing thoughts on this issue, uh, and also let our listeners know uh, how they might follow up with you or, or get more information about your work. Uh, so, uh, Nancy, uh, uh, let's start. Well, well, maybe I should start with Eric because I think we should give Nancy the final word because she's kind of outnumbered here. So let's start, let's start with Eric to be fair. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm sorry if I contributed to Nancy feeling uh, a bit burdened in this conversation. Um, (laughs) yeah, I work for the Reynolds Center. I'm deputy director of the Reynolds Center for Courts and Media at the University of Nevada, uh, Reno. Um, our website is courtsandmedia.org. Um, and, uh, we have, we focus on issues involving the interaction of the courts and media, including fair trial issues, things like that. And, uh, I also have my, my own blog, which is bloglawonline.com, where I write about some of these issues as well. Great. And Nancy? Uh, I'm a professor of law at Chicago Kent College of Law, and I have written a paper called The Conundrum of Cameras in the Courtroom, and it's available online. So uh, I spell out my views in greater detail, 
and I realize that my position is probably a minority position, but I think it's important to think about the the changes that could be brought about by this and not just quickly embrace, but think carefully and cautiously because most people think our judiciary does a very good job and I'd like to uh, keep the judiciary doing a good job. I tend to uh, take that as my uh, perspective or approach, uh, not that access isn't important, it is, uh, but to recognize that cameras um, might add harms that we're not thinking about, that we're not debating uh, in public that we need to. And if I could just add one thing, Nancy may say her opinion is a minority opinion, but it is a majority opinion on the only court that matters, which is the Supreme Court. (laughs) (laughs) And you happen to have three very media-savvy lawyers on this call or on this uh, show with you. So um, you're not in, you may be in the minority here, but you're definitely not a majority on the Supreme Court. Yeah, there was. I did see there was a, a USA Today Gallup poll earlier this week that said that seventy-two percent of the people surveyed think the justices should allow cameras for in for at least those healthcare arguments. But uh, that's uh, that's one survey. Great. Well, thank you very much for uh, being on the show with us today. But uh, before we break, Bob, uh, let's get your final thoughts on this. Well, I, I, it won't surprise anybody where I stand. Uh, needless to say, I I, I think that uh, uh, you, you can't have too much transparency uh, in these things. I, I, I don't think uh, that the the uh, the uh, proceedings at the Supreme Court will in any way be hampered uh, by discreetly installing cameras there. And I think the public's understanding of the court's work will be significantly enhanced uh, and certainly I'd love to see it happen. And I I tend to agree with you, Bob. I think that uh, Nancy has highlighted some very important points that need some consideration and may need what we would call time, place, and manner restrictions uh, to put into place. But I think overall the balance would be uh, benefited by making uh, the Supreme Court available to the general public. And I think we will not be surprised to find that it will go the way of C-SPAN. You know, really there are a select group of people that sit around all day and watch C-SPAN television, and they may sit around and watch Supreme Court television. But for the great majority of people, I don't think they're going to sit around and watch the whole thing. No, I don't think so. so. Well, thanks thanks to both Nancy and Eric for uh, taking the time to be with us today and sharing their thoughts. Uh, this is a really great discussion and uh, really appreciate both of your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and uh Bob, we'd like to remind our listeners that they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. And you can find all of our shows uh, in the podcast uh, library on iTunes and right at the uh, LegalTalkNetwork.com, going back uh, many years of, of these podcasts now. So we encourage our listeners to go uh, go do that. Great. Thank you very much. We'll see you again next week for another great legal show. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.